We are in the second week of our series that we have entitled Appeal. Um, it's a series about the fruit of God's Spirit and the way that uh, the fruit of God's Spirit interacts with our lives, um, gets involved in our lives in ways that are underneath the surface, that are uh, more than skin deep, and how God actually impacts our lives, our character, who we are, in ways that cause us to be able to reflect who God is. And so uh, we are in the second week of our series uh, this week, so we're looking at the topic of joy. And I think it's a good week to look at joy. Uh, this morning was the FIFA World Cup, uh, the largest sporting event in the world, and uh, billions of people watched it. I actually don't know who won, so um, <laughs> um, I, I do know someone who was rooting for France, so maybe it's a vive le bleu kind of thing. Um, but literally billions of people that are watching something, hoping for joy, hoping uh, to be able to celebrate, hoping to avoid the agony of defeat. It's that kind of morning. Um, I'm also mindful of the fact that it's the day before Prime Day when the world's largest retailer offers its own version of joy. And uh, maybe that there are Maybe there are those here who are kind of dusting off their credit cards, hoping for a certain kind of joy uh, tomorrow. And if neither of those um, are really your thing, the other thing that I learned yesterday is that today is National Ice Cream Day. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, who doesn't find some joy in ice cream? So we find joy in all kinds of ways. Some of them last longer than others, to be honest. Um, but God has a claim on joy that is utterly unique. And because of God's claim on joy, there is an impact on our lives that is utterly unique when we connect with the joy that only God can offer. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's go ahead and read our theme verse for the series, which comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 to 23. And it's our custom here to stand to honor the reading of God's word. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand, um, and I'll go ahead and read it for us. Um, and it says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You may be seated. So as I was preparing the message today, um, I realized that when I was engaging different kinds of content on joy, it actually brought me through some highs and lows and ups and downs. So I want to structure today's message in a way that's a little bit unique, but I'm actually going to start by talking about the bad news about joy. So the bad news about joy. And then as I was looking at um, the things, you know, as I was doing more preparation for this, I found that there were elements of good news about joy. And then... I encountered something that really made me feel like this is like the worst news about joy. And then that led me to the best news about joy. Okay, so that's how this message is going to be structured. The good news, uh, the bad news, the good news, the worst news, and the best news. Okay, so I'm going to start with the bad news. And 
you know, right from the start, maybe there's someone here that's like, okay, you're going to start with the bad news about joy. But the reality is, some of us don't really think that much about joy in our lives. That we kind of feel like joy is this optional thing. So whether there's good news or bad news, maybe it doesn't actually affect my life that much. And this was actually the first thing that I kind of wrestled with in my own life. I realized, you know, when I think about my daily life and think about what's important and what I'm trying to get done, joy is often not very high on that list of what I'm worried about. I'm thinking about the work that I need to do, the things on my to-do list that I'm trying to get done. I'm thinking about taking care of my family, taking care of my girls, trying to provide for them, rushing from one place to the other. And if joy somehow happens in the day, that's great. If I miss joy in the day, well, I'm an adult. I can, you know, that's what adults do, right? They push through stuff like that. Now, let me just say that kids do not function that way. And in our household, I have two young daughters. About a month ago, it was the last day of school. And in our household on the last day of school was great joy. And then the very next week, we sent them to a camp and especially my younger daughter was not feeling that camp. And after the first day, she called that camp misery camp. <laughs> she goes, please, I don't want to go back to misery camp. And so for little kids, joy is at the very front of what they're concerned about in their daily experience. Joy is a big deal. And I think a lot of times for us as adults, we, we can diminish the importance of joy. But what I want to suggest is that when we diminish the importance of joy, we actually overlook some really important dynamics of joy that are at work in our lives, whether we recognize it or not. And the first dynamic that I want to call out is actually the bad news about joy. And it's that for many of us, we are living in the midst of a joy crisis. <clears throat> so one of the um, authors that I looked at um, as I was preparing for this message is a professor at San Diego State. Her name is Jean Twenge, um, and she studies generational change. So she studies how one generation is different from another generation, and she particularly looks at the post-millennial generation. Uh, this is folks who were born in 1995 or later. Uh, she calls this generation the iGen, because as they were growing up, they never knew anything besides the existence of iPhones, iPads, social media, the internet. This, this is is their, their, you know, their entire lives have been um, shaped and formed by the reality of these devices. And so she wrote an article uh, late last year that was published in The Atlantic. And uh, there's some pretty sobering things that she writes. So let me, let me read a couple quick quotes. She writes, Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. The twin rise of the smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of a magnitude we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. Now, what kind of data 
is she looking at? What kind of experiences is she looking at to come up with these conclusions? Well, she's looking at some of the daily reality of the lives of some of our teens. She's looking at the reality that the last thing that they see before they go to bed is their phones. The first thing that they check when they wake up is their phones. Many of them sleep with their phones, and many of their relationships are mediated through social media. And so, whether it's Instagram or Snapchat, uh, they're interacting often with very idealized versions of what other people's lives are like. They're interacting with celebrities and following celebrities, seeing their lives up close and personal. Um, and so they're seeing these curated versions of what ideal life is like, the places that people go, the food that people eat, the vacations that people have. And they're comparing their lives to other people's lives. And what they're reporting with this kind of lifestyle is incredibly elevated incidences of anxiety, mental challenge, isolation, loneliness. Now, I think some of the challenges that we see uh, that this professor is indicating in the lives of some of our youth is really just the tip of the iceberg, that maybe this is something that, you know, when we notice it, we say that this is, a, this is a problem, but I actually think that underneath the surface, it's a symptom of a much larger problem. Because the reality is, teens aren't the only ones with smartphones. And a lot of the behaviors that she's seeing in their lives are actually the same behaviors that many of us also experience. So that for many of us, the last screen that we look at is our smartphones right before we go to bed. The first thing that we check when we wake up is our smartphones. We may not be on Snapchat or Instagram. Maybe some of us are. We have a pretty hip church. Um, but for others of us, we may spend time on Facebook or LinkedIn, and we are also engaging in these curated, idealized versions of what other people's lives are like, the food that they're eating, the places that they're going on vacation. And we also are in that same place of comparing our lives against the lives of others. And there was actually a rebuttal, like kind of a response to uh, this professor's article. And the response kind of said, you know, th these dynamics may be real that are going on um, in you know, this younger generation, uh, but the problem really isn't with them and with their relationship with their devices. The real challenge is, is that the parents are equally distracted by their own devices, and whether it is, you know, Facebook or YouTube or, um, you know, their BuzzFeed or Words with Friends or Fortnite or, um, you know, Candy Crush, the parents are equally distracted by the things that are going on with their phones and the exact kind of attention and engagement that these, that, that, the, the teens are longing for and needing at this stage of our lives, they're not getting that from their parents because their parents are just as distracted and addicted as they are. And I got to say, when I read that rebuttal, there were parts of that that hit pretty close uh, that felt a little bit painful in my life that made me think, you know, as I'm raising my two young girls, what is my relationship with my devices? And how do I think about my own engagement with relationships and my own priority in that area? And in the landscape of all of these things, am I experiencing joy? Or are the kinds of dynamics that create what ends up being a toxic environment for joy, right? Comparison, the sense of isolation and loneliness, relationships that 
aren't really founded by real things. They create an environment where real joy is challenged. It's, it's, it's an environment that isn't conducive to cultivating authentic joy. And for many of us, um, you know, there, there may be obvious manifestations that we struggle with in terms of formal mental um, health challenges or depression or anxiety. But for many of us, it's more of a day-to-day thing. It's an elevated level of frustration if we're not experiencing joy in our lives. Um, with our, either it's the pace of life and our work, but because we don't have joy, we're not pleasant people to be around. People um, get kind of snappy responses from us. Uh, we are dealing with an elevated level of stress because that stress has nowhere to go and there's no experience of joy to interact with the frustrations in our lives. For some of us, it might be this explosive midlife crisis where we buy something massive that we don't need because there's a void in our lives that we're trying to fill and we don't have a fundamental experience of joy. So this is the bad news about joy, that for many of us, we are in the midst of a joy crisis. And um, there's a a lot of research that bears it out. Um, A recent survey found that one in three people feel lonely on a weekly basis. Rates of prescription drug use are at an all-time high. A study uh, from the World Health Organization finds that the United States leads all countries in the world in mental health challenges, with one in four Americans experiencing some sort of mental health disorder each year. So the wealthiest nation in the world has the most challenges with mental health, and we live in Silicon Valley, the wealthiest part of the wealthiest nation, that is the epicenter for generating a lot of these technologies that is adding this level of stress, and this is the environment that we live in. So that's the bad news. But there's good news. The good news is that God intends for us to have joy, period. God actually takes joy far more seriously than we do. For for God, joy is not optional, it's essential. C.S. Lewis once wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. And this is what we see in Galatians 5, chapter Uh, verses 22 to 23. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of joy in our lives. And as we saw uh, last week when we talked about what this verse means, it's not like God has a storehouse of joy that he can distribute, right? It's not like there's a warehouse either in heaven or in Seattle where there's two-day free shipping where he can send joy out to those who need it. No, the teaching of this passage is that God is joy, that it's a part of who he is, it's a part of his character, that the spirit of God is the spirit of joy. And so when he comes and enters into relationship with us, when he dwells within us, he plants the seed of joy into us. So this is maybe a little bit of a different way to think about not just joy, but about God, right? Like a lot of times we might hear the phrase, God is love, and that might roll off our tongue a little bit easier, but we don't often talk about God being joy. And we think about some of the roles that God plays, that God is a creator, that God is a judge, that God is a savior, and he is all of those things. But the quality of joy that um, that he has that is a part of his character 
imbues all of these roles that he plays. So when God is a creator, he's a joyful creator. The things that he calls forth into being, he does so with joy because he delights in his creation. When God is a judge, he's a joyful judge. He delights in the fact that he has made a way for people who are under condemnation to be set free because of the work that he has done. And so he delights in being a judge who is able to forgive and set free. And if God is our Savior, God is a joyful Savior. God delights in the fact that his family is open to everyone and that he has made a way for people who have no family to be brought into his family to be called by his name. He is joyful in his work. Some of the implications of that. One of the big ones for me is that I realized if I'm not experiencing joy in my life, there might be a lot of other good stuff that's going on. But if part of my regular daily experience is not joyful, I'm missing out on the presence of God. Like I am fundamentally missing God if I am missing joy in my life. The other big implication for me was realizing if I'm interacting with people and they're not experiencing me as a genuinely, authentically joyful person, I'm not really representing who God is. That if people are interacting with us and they don't experience joy, it means at the very best they're encountering an incomplete picture of the character of God. Because joy is an essential part of who God is. And it's and God has, God has said that he has planted the seed of joy into our hearts. So God has not only promised joy to us, but he also, this is more good news, um, has taught us how to cultivate that seed of joy, how to multiply it and bring it forth. And uh, this comes out uh, in John chapter 15 John, and John 16. We'll look at another passage later. But in this portion of John, uh, Jesus is sharing his heart with his followers, with his disciples, on the very last days um, that, he has walked, that he walked on this earth. So he knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that there are tough times ahead. He's sharing from his heart the things that his disciples need to know. And in John chapter 15, verses 9 to 12, this is what Jesus teaches them. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Now catch this. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. So in this passage, Jesus teaches us a very simple truth about joy. The principal way that we will have fullness of joy, overflowing joy, is if we love one another and if we love and remain in God's love. Now, on some level, this is not rocket science, right? Like, if I had asked most of you, each of you, as you came in, you know, what is the source of real joy in your life? 
Where is it authentic? Where is it real? What do you hold on to in terms of joy in your life? For most of us, after maybe giving it a little bit of thought, would probably land with, you know, my closest relationships are the ones that bring me joy. Uh, my friends, my family, my relationship with God, these are the things that are most important to me. That is where my joy comes from. So we know it intuitively that that's what seems to be true. Um, Jesus has told us that this is true, and actually uh, research studies are confirming that this is true. So one of the most fascinating uh, studies that um, that I encountered is the Harvard study of adult development. And this study is particularly unique uh, because it is in its 80th continuous year, uh, which is unheard of for a research study because it's really hard to sustain engagement with people for 80 years. Like all the people who leave the study you know, tend to die, the study falls apart, stuff like that. But this study has been sustained for 80 years. Uh, when it started in 1938, there were 724 young men uh, in their late teens that were enrolled in the study. Uh, some of them were sophomores at Harvard. Others of them were drawn from some of the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in Boston. And each year, these men were, um, were interviewed, were, uh, were surveyed for their aspirations. They shared their health records, so their health records were tracked. Uh, they were visited in their homes so that they could see how these men interacted uh, with their families. Just um, a tremendous amount of data was gathered around what was happening in these men's lives over time. And the current director of the study, a man by the name of Robert Waldinger, gave a TED Talk a couple years ago. Um, and I recommend uh, this TED Talk if you uh, have a chance to watch it. It says, What Makes a Good Life? Lessons from the Longest Study on Happiness. And he said, when you take all the life stories that they've tracked, and, you know, these stories went in all sorts of directions. There were some that were, to some men started at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. They made their way all the way to the top. Some of them started in a really privileged um, kind of life situation. They ended up falling all the way to the bottom. All kinds of different life stories. But when, um, across all these years, when all these stories were put together and the fundamental patterns were looked at, uh, there was one inescapable conclusion that came out. And the conclusion was this. It didn't matter how wealthy a person was. It didn't matter how famous they were or how successful they were. The people who were happiest, who had the most joy, the people who tended to be the healthiest, the people who tended to live the longest, all were people who had good relationships. And in particular, it wasn't like just a number, like the number of friends that people had or whether or not people were married. The most important thing was the quality of their closest relationships. Basically, the people that they were closest to, that they were in deepest relationships with, did they have trust there? Did they have intimacy there? Did they know that the people in their lives were people that they could count on through thick and thin, through no matter what happened in their lives. That was the one thing that made all the difference in the world. Now, you can almost hear Jesus saying, isn't that what I just said? Like, isn't that what I said 2,000 years ago? Right? Isn't that verse 11 and verse 12? I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. So that's the good news that 
um, finding joy, living a joyful life isn't a mystery. It isn't something, isn't curing cancer. It isn't something that we desperately have to figure out the secret to. It's something that we can all do. It's actually something that we intuitively kind of know already that we should prioritize our most important relationships. We should love each other deeply. We should lean into our relationship with our loved ones and with God. And if you've been with us for uh, the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we had a, you know, we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of gratitude and having a gratitude list. And there's absolutely a direct connection between having these kinds of relationships and being able to have an ongoing experience of gratitude in our lives. Because having these kinds of relationships is something that we can always be grateful for. And there is definitely a link between gratitude and joy. So unfortunately, this is where we get to the worst news about joy. And this is, when I, you know, when I encountered it, this is what made me feel like I just want to tear my hair out. Or, you know, it makes me feel like a little hopeless. It makes, you know, I'm not like a rage tweeter on Twitter, but maybe it would have made me want to do a rage tweet if this is my thing. So this is what I felt like was the worst news about joy. And I sensed it in myself. I sensed it um, in, our, in our culture, um, in, even in this place where we, we want to pursue the things of God. Even when we know what brings us real joy, we tend to sabotage ourselves and chase after things that don't bring us joy at all. It's like we set things up that create a fantasy of joy and we choose those things over things that we know bring us real joy. So for me, this was the worst news, right? It's like drinking poison and realizing that you're drinking poison. So that's the bad news that we looked at, right? And then someone loves you and so someone comes and says, you're drinking poison. Here's the antidote. This is what you need to be well. And it's like knowing that the antidote is there, but not being able to drink it because we're craving the poison so much. It tastes so good to us that we keep on drinking the poison and we refuse to get well. That is the worst news about joy. And how does it manifest? Well, it manifests for those of us who know we work a little too much. We work, our, our, our schedule prioritizes work more than it should. And we know that it's harming the relationships that are more important to us, our closest relationships. We know that our family or our friendships or our relationship with God is suffering. And yet, it is so hard to change our work schedule to be able to have a healthier balance in life. It could be what we talked about at first, that we know that we spend too much time staring at a screen, uh, whether it's on social media or playing a video game or online shopping or something else. We know that that draws too much time and attention for us, and we want to change our time priorities so that we're spending real time with real people and we want to create more space to engage in our relationship with God because we know that those things bring us real joy, and yet 
it is so hard for us to change how we actually spend our time. For some of us, maybe it's around how we spend our money, that we know we spend far too much money on things that we don't really need and don't really bring us joy. We have storage units that are filled with things that we never use. We have closets that are full to the brim. Some of us may know the studies that have shown that we actually get far more joy by being generous and spending our money on things that cause joy for other people than on spending money for ourselves. And yet, we keep on spending money on things that don't meet the needs of real joy in our lives. And for some of us, it's our desire to be rich or famous or wildly successful. And we have these aspirations and deep down, we know that they aren't going to satisfy us. You know, there was a recent study uh, for millennials and, um, and post-millennials and it asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And 80% of them said that they wanted to be rich. 50% of them said that they wanted to be famous. And uh, one commentator noted the challenge with that is rich and famous is not a job. Um, But there are too many stories that we see all the time of those with great wealth and great success dealing with great emptiness and pain in their lives, even to the point of taking their lives. And the recent tragedies that we've seen with the deaths of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade drive that home, that material wealth and success in this world are not the path to deep and lasting joy for us. And yet, it is so hard to change our aspirations, what we feel like we long for. Right? That's the crazy thing, and especially here in Silicon Valley, is even knowing where real joy comes from, that there's a part of us that says, I actually don't want, I actually look down on the joy that, co- that, that comes from being content, from being grateful, from focusing on spending time with other people. I actually prefer the joy that comes from success and achievement. That's the joy that I want, even though it's not real. You know, one of the, um, the tweets that I came across, it came from Marcus Person. Uh, he was the creator of Minecraft. He sold Minecraft um, in 2014 for 2.5 billion pounds. Um, and a year later, he uh, sent out this tweet. He said, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. But for most of us, we're like, I want to be that miserable. Like, I want to be in Ibiza being miserable. Like, God, please let me, be, let me be that miserable, right? Like, we're like Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof that says, if, God, if money is a curse, smite me, God, and let me never recover, right? That's, there's a part of us that that's what we want to choose for even when we know it's not the path to real joy. Now, I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having a dream, working hard, and being successful. But let me suggest that one of the ways that we know that it is God who has given us a dream, 
it is God who is calling us into a vocation or a commitment, that it is God that is leading us towards excellence, is that God will enable us to have joy in the journey. He's not going to call us in a direction where it's going to be impossible for us to experience the joy that he offers. So when we move in the direction that God is calling us to, he will be with us in those daily moments. He'll allow us to invest in our closest relationships. He'll enable us to maintain our close friendships. He's going to allow us to go deeper in our relationship with him, even as we follow in the path that he has called us to. That's one of the ways that we know that it's him calling and not just our own personal search for a false joy. And so the news, the hard news to accept is that if our joy is dependent on something happening in the future— like our joy is dependent on an IPO or our joy is dependent on a certain number of zeros in our net worth or a certain salary or something else happening in the future to be able to allow us to have joy. I hate to break it to you, but when that happens, if that happens, you're going to be the same person then that you are now. And if you're not experiencing joy now, you're not going to experience joy then, even if everything happens exactly the way that you hope it will. I want to share a story that I think um, has something important to teach us about joy. It comes out of our New Beginnings community. Uh, Atia Smith is a partner here at NBCC. Uh, in the fall of 2015, she was at the pinnacle of her career in the Army. Uh, this is her at her promotion ceremony to become a major uh, in, the, in the Army. As a part of her promotion, she was offered a prestigious fellowship that would have allowed her to continue her career trajectory. Um, but Atia knew that uh, a lot of her career success in the Army had come with some serious costs in other areas of her life. Uh, she was just coming off of an overseas deployment, um, and in that time, it had become clear that uh, there was major impact to her marriage, to her relationship with her husband. She had two young boys who were about to become teenagers, and there was significant friction in her relationship with her boys. And so after significant prayer she decided to retire from the army. Uh, she had surpassed her 20 years. She had a dream of going back and getting her master's degree in financial planning. Uh, she wanted to create space uh, in order to see whether God might save her marriage. Um, not easy decisions for her to make. That Christmas, uh, 2015, she traveled to Alabama to be with her husband's family. Uh, on that trip, there was a nagging pain in her leg that got significantly worse on the flight. Uh, when she got to Alabama, she went to see a doctor. The doctor said, well, it looks like sciatica pain. Um, you should just rest on it and it should get better in a few days. The pain didn't get better. Uh, she came back to the Bay Area, went to see a doctor again. Uh, the doctor said, it's probably sciatica pain, but just in case, we'll go ahead and have a neurologist check it out. Um, so she had an appointment scheduled, but on New Year's Day of 2016, the pain was so intense that she went to the emergency room. The doctor in the emergency room did some tests on her. 
discovered that she had blood clots in her leg that had totally cut off her circulation, sent her into emergency surgery. When she woke up several days later, she learned that in order to save her life, her leg had needed to be amputated. Atiyah's story, I think, brings out some of the most significant fears that we have about life, about joy, about what happens if we take a step in trusting God. If we try to do things God's way, if we lean into the values of God's kingdom, is God going to have our back? Is God really going to come through for us? Are we going to reach a point where we feel like we have regrets about not chasing after success and fame and status like everyone else that we see around us? Are we going to reach a place where we feel like our hope for joy has been stolen away? And we might be tempted to think, isn't that where Atiyah ended up? But I haven't told you the best news about joy yet. So in John 15 and 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's taught them the secret of joy. He's said the secret to joy is love each other the way that I've loved you. Um, remain in my love. And he's, he said that this is how you will experience the fullness of joy while joy will overflow in your lives. But in John 15 and 16, Jesus is also careful to say, the joy that you experience will not insulate you from the suffering and grief of this world. And so in John 16, verses 1 to 2, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, for you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. And I want you to imagine being in that kind of community, being persecuted in that way, where people are trying to kill those that you love because of their faith, because they think it's a good thing to do. And in that kind of situation and circumstance, if you can imagine, if you're that person's loved one, if you're that person's friend, how can you imagine being able to experience joy in that context? Then Jesus goes on and teaches something specific about the relationship between grief and joy. And he says in John 16, verses 20 to 22, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. So here's the best news that we learn about joy from Jesus that God's joy can be real in our lives no matter what pain or grief or tragedy we are going through. And what Jesus is teaching here in this verse is he's saying that God's joy can come through grief and pain. It can come alongside of grief and pain. It will be like a woman in childbirth where 
my wife is very clear to remind me, the pain of childbirth does not end when the baby comes out. The pain is still there, but the joy of the baby being born overshadows and eclipses the pain that is still present. And so the joy is real and significant and authentic, and it overcomes the pain that is still in the world, that is still in the woman's life. So I think this is true. What Jesus is teaching is that the joy can overcome, can overshadow the pain, no matter what source the pain comes from. So in Atiyah's life, the pain came from the brokenness of this world, the frailty of our bodies. And God is saying, even when the brokenness of this world just happens, when something bad happens, my joy can come in a surprising way. I think it's true when the pain and the grief come from the things that other people do to us, right? That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. He's saying, even if people persecute you, even if people abuse you, even if you're the victim of injustice, my joy can come and you will find joy that no one can take away. And it's even true when the pain and the grief come because of the choices we make, because we are longing for or seeking after something that isn't really good for us, that isn't, that's a misplaced priority, and we inflict pain on ourselves. And we actually see that all through the Gospels, that the people who are following Jesus were just like us in Silicon Valley. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand as he conquered the Romans and rode forth in victory. They wanted to be on top of the world. And when those hopes and dreams were crushed, God's joy entered into their lives in a new and totally unexpected way. But they received a joy that was eternal and that overcame all their grief. Let's take a moment to see how this continues to play out in Atiyah's life. Hey, NBCC, this is Tia, and today I'd like to share a short account of my journey in life and how God showed up and helped me reframe uh, the perspective of joy in my life. Uh, two and a half years ago, I was hospitalized for an unknown ailment, um, and I, as a result, became an amputee. During the stay in the hospital, I was unaware of decisions that were being made on my behalf. However, when I woke up, I knew God wasn't done with me because I was still alive. And that in itself was my initial um, beginning in reframing joy in my life. During that time in my life, I had a marriage that was on the cusp of falling apart. I also was not experiencing a very good relationship with my children. So it was a rocky point in my life and God showed up of course, with things that he always does, with things that are unexpected, such as my situation and becoming an amputee. But through this experience, um, God has uh, allowed me to heal some of the wounds uh, that were festering in my marriage. And also, he gave me more time with my boys to establish a, a, a renewed relationship with them and enable me to see really the important things that God probably was 
trying to get me to see during the course of my life when I didn't feel really feel his presence. So I'm just unbelievably uh, blessed. That's how I define my life now. In spite of the suffering and pain that I've gone through, the love that I've received as a result has allowed me to also know that God's presence is critical when it comes to periods of times like that. To hear the way that Jesus is teaching about joy is woven in through Atiyah's story. That Atiyah was at the pinnacle of her career in the military. Her life turned in a radically different direction. But the deepest desires of her heart have been preserved as God has redeemed the circumstances of the situation, as God enabled her to connect in a new way with her husband, to rebuild the foundations of their marriage, to allow her to reconnect with her kids, that the deepest desires of her heart and the strongest foundations of joy in her life were rebuilt. And through this experience, she has encountered the reality and the faithfulness of God in a dramatically new way. And her relationship with him has been taken to a whole new level and that there is a source of joy that is now in her life that she did not experience before, even in the midst of real pain and real loss. And that can be our real experience of joy as well, because there are things that we are going to lose in this life. All the false sources of joy or the incomplete sources of joy that we seek after are eventually going to let us down. No matter how much money we make in our lives, at the end of our lives, the size of our bank account is not going to help us one bit. It's going to let us down. You know, some of us find a lot of joy in our health and our physique and our attractiveness in this season of our life, and that's great. But at some point, that is going to start to wane, and that's going to start to go. And no matter how hard we've worked out in our lives— that's going to let us down. We're going to lose that source of joy. And even the best that this world has to offer, even our closest family and friends, which are a real source of joy, even then we're going to find ourselves one day looking across the span of death. And we're going to realize that those who are closest to us can't go on that journey with us but there is one who can. There is a God who has created us, who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has promised us to never leave us or forsake us, to be with us each and every day of our lives, to love us faithfully, and that when we come to that place where we're looking across the span of death, he has promised to be the one that not only holds us up to that point, but will receive us on the other side. And he will welcome us into everlasting love and everlasting joy. And that is the promise and the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. This is the best news about joy. This is the promise that God gives us from his word, from what Jesus has done for us, 
This is how he invites us to go forward in bearing fruit in joy in a way that our hearts most deeply desire.